Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Welcome along. Everyone knows that we have a giant global problem in global warming, and that part of the solution to that is a retention of our forests. Trees consume carbon dioxide. They are our silent friends. They do so much for us. But of course, the forests, the rainforests, the great, largely equatorial growths are being cut, are being savaged in some places for farming and for economic development. The answer clearly is to have some accommodation with that. So I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Kevin Conrad, who is director of the Coalition for Rainforest Nations. He comes to us from the COP27 meeting in Egypt. Kevin, good day. Good day, Llewellyn. It's great to be with you. Well, it's very nice to have you. Would you like to give us a quick uh, uh, pricey of the rainforest situation? How many nations in your organization? Are they all tropical? The whole picture, if you would. Well, we started about 20 years ago, and we have about 55 countries that we all work together with. And I say about 55 the goal is to put ourselves out of business. The idea is that we want countries that can actually manage their forest resources and reverse global deforestation and don't need our support anymore. So the, the smaller that number is, the happier I am. You uh, sound like an American to me, but you come from Papua New Guinea. Yes, I do. Uh, I was uh, raised in Papua New Guinea, and then I was sent to the U.S. to become educated and civilized. Jury's still out on both. Um, and along the way, I picked up an American accent. Uh, well, good for you. And what does your family do in Papua New Guinea? My father was a linguist. Um, he, Papua New Guinea has about 830 languages. And as they became a British member of the British Commonwealth and were taught English, uh, their languages were disappearing. And as a matter of fact, respect for cultures was disappearing. As a youngster, if you can speak a language your parents don't, you think you're, you're, you're more advanced than they are and you start to disrespect your traditions. This was leading to increased crime. And so one of the things is to respect your languages, respect your cultures, and also be part of a global, be a global citizen, but don't forget who you are. And that was, those are important things. What is the state of our forests? Uh, we hear these alarming stories, largely out of Brazil, and we tend to think of rainforests in Brazil, or at least rainforests and the Amazon. We don't realize that there are rainforests in Africa, rainforests in New Guinea, etc. Yeah, look, the rainforest destruction, thankfully, on a global level, has actually been stabilizing, which is positive. And as I was just listening to a presentation from some global organization that tracks all of these things, we're actually slowly reversing deforestation on an aggregate. But there are three countries, particularly, that deforestation is still advancing, and that's Brazil, and that's Indonesia, and that's the DRC. And the reason I mentioned those three countries is because they're the three largest tropical biomes. One is the Amazon, the other is the Congo, and then the other one is in sort of Asia Pacific areas. But those are the three largest forest area, tropical forest areas globally. And uh, they are being savaged 
for economic development or economic survival. We might add that DRC is, to most of us, the Congo. Correct. Uh, and uh, there's an interesting story out of Gabon, isn't there? Because Gabon is an African country that retains an amazing 80, 80 nearly 90% of its forests. How has that happened? And is that a, a good example of the way to go? Or is it a, 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 if you will, a petri dish of what should be happening because it's a small country and we can concentrate on it? Well, let me, let me start with your first question because you put two together there. The first is, why are rainforests being destroyed? And then I'm going to lead into the Gabon story. And it's really due to market failures. What, what the global economy has done is it's valued woods and it's valued agricultural products that come from the land. So if you're a poor developing country, the only market offers to you are sell us your wood or plant something that we can buy. And both of those cause loss of, of forestry and loss of, of rainforest particularly. And so what we haven't been doing is valuing the ecosystem services of those forests. So one of those most valuable is the carbon sequestration. So we all remember photosynthesis from our, our biology classes, but as trees grow, they're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and they're storing it in their wood and in their leaves and in their root structures. So forests provide a really important climate value proposition. Unfortunately, we've got to learn to value that ecosystem. And that's the important part of what the, the Paris Agreement is trying to do, which we'll come to. Now, Gabon in a particular case, they have a small population per land area. So I'll just compare them to Papua New Guinea, where I grew up. So Gabon has about 2 million people in, I think it's uh, 43 million hectares of land. Papua New Guinea, on the other hand, has 10 million people on 78 million hectares of land. I'm just, I, I don't remember the exact size of the countries, but, it, but the proportions are generally correct. And the populations are for sure. And so Gabon has had the advantage that they have a low population base and they have had a fairly substantial oil industry. So what happened is 83% of their population has moved to the cities. Papua New Guinea, the converse is true. They haven't had a, a, a high uh, oil um, sort of economy. It's mostly been agricultural. And so you have about 80% still in the forest and putting pressure on there to grow agricultural commodities. So you have two very different dynamics. Um, so Gabon is about 80% uh, forested, Papua New Guinea is about 73% forested, but they face very different challenges in, in, in terms of the pressures that are on their forests. Uh, could you just translate hectares into acres for us? Well, uh, a hectare is about two and a half uh, acres. I actually so, knew that, but I don't think everybody listening knows it or watching, so I, exactly. I thought that up. Um, uh, and are you making progress? What What is your organization trying to do? What is it seeking to do? Well, we are, we are seeking to reverse deforestation country by country and aggregate that globally. So our organization started this thing called the Red Plus Mechanism uh, in, the, in the Paris Agreement. And what's really impressive about that and actually hopeful about that is that 90% of the world's rainforests are part of this mechanism. 
And so what that requires is monitoring all of the forests in your entire country, reporting on the changes, and getting incentives if you are either reducing deforestation or you are increasing your forest cover. So the idea is to value those ecosystem services based on a national scale mechanism. Why is that important? Unfortunately, we have a lot of these voluntary carbon projects that will try to seek credit for saving seven trees in one part of the country and knowingly are aware that 7,000 are being cut elsewhere. Now, from an atmospheric standpoint, the atmosphere doesn't feel just the seven that are being saved. It also feels the 7,000 that are being destroyed. So it's a little bit of a, a false narrative to give someone credit for saving a small piece of, of the, the forest when atmospherically we have to count all of them. So the Red Plus mechanism requires countries to report on all of their forests, and they only get credit for changes that are national in scale. I want to just sort out how many countries are rainforest countries. You said your membership was something like 50. Is that the number that are rainforest countries that have forestry? It's, it's probably about 65. Um, but th those 65 have rainforest, but they also have mountain forests. Um, you know, some of the members are like Nepal and Pakistan that actually don't have any rainforest. So these are really forested developing countries that are engaging. All the forests are important, but we focus mostly on the rainforest countries. And part of the reason for that is the biodiversity. There's so much more to a forest than carbon. Carbon is really just our proxy. Um, but the biodiversity is so much higher in rainforest areas than it is in a, in a mountain forest or an arid forest, for example. And what are you asking for? What, what have you been at COP27? What have you put on the table? Say, please, we should do this. This is what we need. We're asking for two things. The first is that the emission reductions and removals that have been increased by developing countries so far are uncompensated, meaning there was a promise that if developing countries could reverse their deforestation, they would be in effect compensated or per their, carbon, their carbon emission reductions would be purchased. Unfortunately, only 4% of those emission reductions have been bought and paid for. So what we're finding is that the poorest of countries have done the most in battling climate change and they've done it on the backs of their own economies. And I'm gonna come back to Brazil and explain why, why compensation is important. But so, so, being, so promises being fulfilled in terms of being compensated or those credits being paid for is an important thing. The, the second thing that we're fighting for is that early action is also compensated for. So think about forests like a bottle of wine. The older an emission reduction that there is, the more valuable it is, because during that the, the, the subsequent years, that has been growing more biodiversity and, and sequestering more, more carbon. But all those old emission reductions haven't been paid for by the global community. So those are the two things we're asking for. Make sure you live up to your promises and please value the work we've done in the past. And you are going to explain the situation in Brazil. Yes, thank you for the reminder. So Brazil was actually one of the most successful countries in reducing deforestation. They actually reduced their rates of deforestation by about 80%. And they don't get much media for that. 
They don't get much credit for that. Everyone wants to talk about the bad news. But Brazil was one of the most successful countries. And then the government changed and Bolsonaro came in and he looked at the meager sort of financial support Brazil had been uh, receiving. And he noticed that much of it was what we call boomerang aid. It was going to foreign NGOs and foreign companies. And the money was actually coming from abroad and going back abroad. And, and not much of it was sticking in Brazil. So he put a block on that instrument and, and the countries that were providing those that support walked away. And then he said, well, okay, if I'm not being compensated, so to overcome those opportunity costs from these market failures, then I, I have no choice but to tell my farmers to go back to work. So deforestation went up. And that's the fear I have. I'll use Papua New Guinea as an example. Papua New Guinea, since it entered the Paris Agreement, has reduced its national rates of deforestation by 53%. But the Paris Agreement has not compensated them at all for that hard effort. And I know for sure that if the communities that have slowed deforestation aren't paid money for sustainable livelihoods, they're going to go back to the old ways, that the, the commodities are going to win again, and that deforestation is going to go up. So the point is, if we're going to value ecosystem services, we have to make payment for those ecosystem services. Otherwise, those other, those other economic uh, opportunities will take, uh, take heart again. You've mentioned several times compensation. It's, yes. it's the central part of, of your program. Um, who is going to pay this compensation and to whom? Is it going to go to the farmer who doesn't cut down more trees? Is he going to go to the government and be diverted for some other purpose, as we have often seen? Uh, or is it, as you said, going to go to international organizations and non-government organizations, NGOs? Um, uh, how do you deliver the money and who should deliver the money? And is there a mechanism for raising it? So let, let's go through that in two steps. So first, let's talk about how the money should be distributed, and then I'll talk about how the money should be mobilized. Under the Paris Agreement, governments are the ones that, quote unquote, earn the credit first. And there's a, there's a reason for that. We noticed that when governments pull their levers, there are more changes than if we start bottom up that the governments have a lot of policy levers they can pull that can change uh, deforestation dramatically. But if the governments are not putting money where the actual deforestation is occurring, it's going to fail. And that is that means if it's a policy error or a corruption error, error, right? If the money isn't going as close as possible to where the deforestation is occurring, it's not going to work in the end. That way. We can't have, quote unquote, rent seekers, whether they're a corporation, an NGO, or a government. So we're working with all of our countries to set up sort of what we would call climate funds with equitable distribution. So, And that's going to change by country. So I'll use Gabon as an example. You raised them earlier in our discussions. Gabon has come up with a policy, and I'm not going to get this 100% right because I didn't, I didn't write it down in advance of this interview, but it goes something like this. Of every dollar that they receive, they want to use 25% to pay off their national debt. They want to use 25% for their sovereign wealth fund for future generations. And they're going to use 25% to put in their, their governmental annual budgets for things like roads and healthcare and education, et cetera. 
The remaining 25% goes to forest-based communities. Now, keep in mind, only 13% of their population is forest-based, but that will then go for direct payments for, for uh, policy for activity changes, but also for job creation. So 25% in Gabon's case goes to forest-based communities. In Papua New Guinea, they have to do it slightly different. Keep in mind in Gabon, the government owns the forest because they're a Francophone uh, country. In the French country, countries, uh, mostly the government owns natural resources. In Papua New Guinea, 97% of the land is owned by indigenous communities. And the government can only approve or disapprove of their actions um, for, for industry. So a, a community has to come to government, ask to plant coffee and export that coffee, or if there's mining, et cetera. So Papua New Guinea has to put probably 60 to 70% of their revenue directly to communities because they drive most of the forest policy. The remaining 30 to 40% is for debt, uh, for debt, for, for sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. So the, the, revenue chain, the, the revenue distribution changes based on the legal situation in each country. So that's part one. How is the money handled? Through trust funds that have different distribution based on national circumstance. When it comes to paying the money, in that sense, there, there, are, multi, there are multiple sources. We started with public finance to sort of to de-risk this. It was pretty daunting for a developing country to consider putting its entire forest area in some type of mechanism that was being monitored every two years and they were quote unquote punished by revenue income being withheld if they destroyed forest area. So we started with public money, usually in smaller areas to test it. Now that countries have agreed to go to national scale, most of them, uh, Brazil, for example, is just agreeing now at the end of the year to start monitoring on a national level. When they start going national now, public finance will still be required, but this is where the global carbon markets also come in. So countries, the Paris Agreement allows, allows a trade of carbon. So for example, the United Kingdom or the United States cannot meet its commitments. It's allowed to import carbon reductions from another a country that has actually overachieved in its emission reductions. Those are called ITMOs, Internationally Transferable Mitigation Outcomes, and those are things we're negotiating here at COP27. Um, and so that's one source, but companies and individuals and, and cities can also buy these emission reductions from developing countries like Papua New Guinea, and they can use them for their own net zero and their own uh, offsetting of their business or their life or their lifestyle. So we're hoping that public and private finance will meet these requirements. It is a fact, isn't it, that uh, pure lumber exports, log exports, are very low value to a country. Yeah, they're not value yes. added in any way. Uh, one of the things that it seems to me that happened, well, started happening right after the Second World War, was that there was an overvaluation of raw materials in anticipating the growth of countries, and it didn't work. What worked was the value-added countries like Japan. So if you can bring value-added uh, uh, commerce to these countries, you will, one, they'll get more value for their lumber if they are cutting it, and there'll be less inclination to cut it. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a case again that Gabon has demonstrated. So Gabon had an export-oriented logging industry 
and they converted it to a value domestic value-added industry. And what they found is that job creation went up by a factor of 10 and also did the, the retained earnings in the economy. So I think it's, it's, well, it's well demonstrated that if these countries can, can use the ecosystem service values that they get and reinvest in value-added industry, they can actually sustainably use their forests. And at the same time, those forests can continue to pull carbon out of the atmosphere for all of us. And that's an important principle also that I wanna, wanna touch on. And that's this, this sort of uh, free rider uh, scenario that we have. So we know, for example, that the majority of emissions come from Europe, the United States, um, Japan, and now also China. But forests in, in the Congo Basin and in Papua New Guinea are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere every year. It's about four to five gigatons of emissions. This is about 10% of total emissions are being pulled out of the atmosphere by these countries for free, but yet they're not, they're not being compensated. And so this is a very interesting, I, uh, this brings us back really to old and long-standing arguments about North-South and the transfer of wealth from rich countries to poor countries so that we don't have such discrepancies and so many problems. Uh, years ago in Paris, I was told by a member of the French government, if we don't do something about the poor countries, we'll get three imports we don't want, terrorism, uh, immigrants and uh, uh, drugs. Now you yeah. get one additional. If you don't do something about it, you will get global warming or you will stop <laughs> uh, ameliorating global warming, which gives it a kind of uh, cutting edge, but it still remains that you're asking rich countries to pay, which they don't want to do ever. And uh, secondly, the delivery issue that it brings about if there is money that it brings, I had a big argument with the uh, the man who was then Chancellor of the Exchequer, who became British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, about Africa. I'm from Africa, and I I've seen both the the effect of good policy and the devastating theft of money, the bad policy or bad uh, management of policy. And he said, "No, we'll find the right people." And I said, "But." But we've been trying to find the right people for decades. Uh, so the delivery problem, and uh, he wanted to raise a very large sum of money simply to help uh, uh, poor countries, not at that time to save their forests. But it would seem to me, if I can interject here, that saving forests is something the people of the world can understand. Uh, so you have well, a... Have a, uh, you have a big advantage there. Well, you're exactly right. And, and I worked with, with Gordon um, Brown myself. Um, and he was one of the, Tony Blair and then Gordon, when we first introduced this concept, they were, they were active in supporting it. I have to say that neo-colonial markets still exist. Both John Kerry and Zach Goldsmith were today um, chairing a meeting where they're trying to get they're trying to get carbon from developing countries for five and ten dollars, and they're setting up a system to sort of lock in future contracts at very low prices. We all know that carbon in Europe is at eighty dollars. The British actually did a 
a they had their their uh, what is it called economy and science division or something did a cost of carbon for the British economy to to meet 1.5 degrees, which started at 120 dollars. And at the same time, they're setting up a mechanism to buy that same carbon for $10 from developing countries. So it, it hasn't changed. But this is something that if we're going to have a just transition, we need a just carbon price. You know, there's something that people don't often realize. There's more carbon in the world's forests than there are in every known fossil fuel reserve that we have. Now, that's coal, that's oil, and that's natural gas. So the reality is, even if we could turn off every source of emissions from burning fossil fuels today and we lost our forests, we would still lose the battle against climate change. But not only that, we'd lose the six or seven gigatons of removals and we'd lose the biodiversity. So people don't like to hear it, but we've got, it's a higher priority to save our forests than it is to stop using fossil fuels. Now. When I say it's a higher priority, that doesn't in any way mean that we don't have a critical need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. But the, the fact of the matter is the world is going to be worse off, worse, worse off if we lose our forests than it is if we more slowly go uh, as off our addiction to, to oil and gas. Gavin, your organization, um, Coalition for Rainforest Nations, where is it headquartered? Well, we're headquartered in New York now, um, and there's a history to that. One is having a nonprofit in the U.S. is actually Americans are used to nonprofits and contribute much more than anywhere else in the world. So if I was going to mobilize uh, capital to help provide the capacity for developing countries, the U.S. was probably the best jurisdiction to do that. Um, it also happened that I was studying in grad school there. And so this was actually my thesis in grad school. I was studying at Columbia Business School and London Business School. And my thesis was how to reverse global deforestation at scale and mobilize the capital to do it. Um, so that happened while I was in New York. And also the UN is there. So the headquarters of the United Nations is there, which is where the UN Framework Convention uh, is sort of originates and is, is governed is governed at a high level. So for a lot of reasons, we ended up in New York. I'm not sure how long I can stay there because it gets particularly cold in the winter and growing up in Papua New Guinea year after year, I just can't handle that. You, do you have an educational operation in some of these countries? Yes, we go in every single country that asks us to, and we help them learn how to use uh, satellite imagery, how to track force, how to complete reports, how to calculate carbon, how to do all of those things. We work in all of our countries in capacity building, but we also help them at, at, at meetings like the COP. I mean, I'll use an example. The U.S. delegation will bring 250 people. Someone from Cameroon will have two. Um, and you'll be, it's, an, uh, it's a totally tilted negotiating playing field. So we do negotiation training as well. Um, and then we're also helping them try to access the capital markets uh, to pay for their carbon as well. Thank you, Kevin, so much for your time with us. Uh, I'm sure you're warm enough there in Egypt. You said exactly important to you. And uh, we hope to continue this conversation on this program in the future. It's been a pleasure. Meanwhile, that is our show for today. I thank you all for coming along. And I'm going to go out and hug a tree. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, 
Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we 